The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 61 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, Relationship Therapist. The Pobscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations with therapists and change makers. We examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of change within ourselves and within the world around us. When you peel back the layers, what lies underneath addictions, overworking, and dissociation? What's coming to light with the Me Too movement and our inability to discuss politics or religion or sex effectively? Often, varying shades of trauma lie underneath. This unveiling up-levels our collective understanding of not only trauma, but emotions, anger especially, as well as our understanding of the power of our limbic systems and the nature of epigenetics. As things simmer to the surface and people proclaim their wounds, messy responses are inevitable. Anger, for one, is not tidy. There does seem to be a shift happening. We're learning how to heal, how to be a grounding force for others, how to connect in a deeper, richer way. We're learning how to listen. This is what this week's episode is all about. I have my friend Robert Cox, a Kansas City, Missouri-based therapist known for his work in trauma, addiction, and autism, here with me. Robert has dedicated much of his work to the study and treatment of severe trauma resulting in dissociation and dissociative disorders. His passion lies in helping his clients to see their own broken spaces and journey into healing. And we are talking through the interconnectedness of all of these issues and how we move forward. Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I am so excited to be here today and to go into this conversation with Robert Cox, a dear friend. And actually, Robert, when we first launched the Practice of Being Seen podcast, when I was doing the show with Marisa, you interviewed us. And I'm just really grateful that we get to turn the tables again right now. And I get to dive in around your expertise, which is trauma and addictions. And we're going to have just a really exploratory and fun conversation, like right in your wheelhouse around trauma addictions and how they affect relationships. Well, I'm excited to be here. You know, I'm like a giant geek when it comes to this stuff. So this is my playground. I know you are. And I love geeking out on this stuff with you. You've always been such a fun person to geek out like this with. So let's just go ahead and dive right in because I think that we're recording this a little bit ahead of time. This episode probably won't go live until early 2018, but we're recording this on December 6th. So the Time Magazine of Person of the Year cover was just announced today, and it's the Silence Breakers. And I think this really relates back into, you know, the Me Too hashtag and all the stories that are coming back and the power being taken back by a lot of victims lately. And what we're seeing file into our offices in different ways. So I thought that this was just a topic we could really sink our teeth into. Yeah. You know, I'm torn in two ways. I'm so happy to see it that, you know, you told me about it a few minutes ago. And I looked at the magazine cover and they have on the website, they have these flashing images of these women who have been silence breakers. And it was heartbreaking for me and I'm in tears and they're a mixture. You know, it's tears of joy and hope and it's about time. And it's also a little bit of fear that I don't want this to be another thing that we talk about for a couple of weeks. You know, our fearless leader does some stupid thing or tweets or starts World War III and we forget about it and move on. 
right? I don't want that. I want this to be the break point. We need the break point because it's not like we haven't been dealing with this for centuries, right? Let us dive in underneath because, yeah, we have been dealing with this for eons, for centuries. And I think, you know, something that you bring to the table here is the underbelly of this, the deep understanding of what this all really means that, you know, I suspect a lot of our listeners and even people who are latching onto this campaign and recognizing that, you know what, I have stories of my own too. I didn't even notice I had them. I think all of these people probably don't understand the underbelly as well as you do. I mean, I hope I have an understanding. I think that in some ways, even though I've dug into it, even though I've really tried to understand it, my maleness limits me. So I'll say that up front, right? And I think that's appropriate to say. Yeah. But, you know, I explain to my clients all the time. And, you know, we were talking just a while ago about women who come in our office and they've experienced these horrible abuses, sexual abuse or assault early, and it's changed the way they're able to relate to their spouse, right? Mm -hmm. And I try very hard to explain to men who are in my office that you've never lived a life where you've had to constantly be aware of your surroundings as you're walking along at twilight or at dark, right? You've never lived a life where you've had to live at this level of anxiety that everyone might not be safe in my environment. I said, just your physical presence. I was telling a client the other day, you know, as a man, just your physical, I know you love your wife and she knows you love her, but your physical presence as a male is much larger than her. And therefore, on just a limbic brain level, she's already threatened by you. And when we add the background of sexual assault, of sexual violence in her world, it makes it even worse. And so, of course, you raise your voice because you're frustrated. What you're not seeing is that that's very threatening to her, even though you don't mean it that way. And that it may be evoking an old story. Even though you don't mean it that way. And even though you don't know that old story. Right. And may or may not know the old story. But, you know, in the moment, we all get heated and we get angry and we get frustrated And it comes out in our voice at times. And while we would never consider violence, what you're not seeing is that she already expects it from the world, you know? And so, of course, she loves you. Of course, if you sit down rationally with her, she's going to say, yes, I feel safe with him. He makes me feel safe in the world. But in the moment that your voice raises, some of that safety slips away. And so the limbic region of her brain starts to take over. And the fight or flight response is there. And she becomes terrified of you in that moment. Yes. You know, and so I think a lot of this is incumbent on us as practitioners just to educate our people, right? Yeah. And I think this terror, this fear, I mean, if one is following the news and social media and scrolling around on all the different apps these days, terror and fear are the thing that are kind of being fed to us. Oh, absolutely. Because that's how I get you to vote for me, right? I can trigger your limbic region and it shuts off the top part of your brain, which is your rational thinking area. And then you will do whatever I ask you to do as long as I promise to keep you safe, right? Mm -hmm. Look, it's not just politicians that use this. It's actually marketers that use this, right? What might be killing your children next on the news, right? And in the meantime, watch our 15 toothpaste commercials because that could save your life too 
right? Mm. No. You, don't, you don't want gum disease. <laughs> More importantly, <laughs> you want a mate, right? Yeah. What's your life if you don't have a mate? And if your teeth aren't right, you won't have a mate, you know, so. Right. I mean, like all of it connects back to this, this place of shame and fear and vulnerability. Absolutely. So, you know, a few of the things that people do when they get in these places is they either become really angry, they dissociate, or they lean to substances to kind of numb it all out. Right. Absolutely. I tell, you know, I just finished my graduate course in addictions counseling. And the first thing I told my students day one, because it's surprising to me, the school that I'm teaching for is a rock star program. I went through it myself but even they don't really focus heavily on trauma, right? Now that's starting to change, but the field is just catching up with where the research has been for the past seven years, right? And so how the trauma changes the brain. And so one of the first things I tell my students is, if you think you're going to just do addictions and not be trauma-informed, leave now. Leave the profession now because every (laughs) bit of addiction that you're dealing with is undergirded by some form of trauma, which has created shame in that individual's life, which has created a sense of worthlessness, which has created attachment disorders. All of these things are rooted in these early trauma experiences, right? So, so much. And I say more in early trauma than in later trauma, because if I'm raised in a healthy, nurturing environment, that builds resilience into me. And individuals raised in that way may suffer trauma like war or a horrible car crash, but they recover from it fairly quickly because they have that base of resilience built into their brain from early on. It's a reference point. And, you know, I think this is one of the things that I see so often in my relationship work with couples is where somebody will come in without this baseline knowledge or knowingness, I like to call it of what it's like to love themselves. Look, we get back to this issue that you know I like covering, which is brokenness. I don't think any of us fully know or love ourselves. But we know what it's like sometimes. We know what it's like to be loved. Yes, and that's, I think, even more important. And it's the fact that we can't completely and entirely love ourselves that creates that need that we begin to reach out for connection through, right? It is our brokenness that becomes the healing place for us that creates the need for connection. Without that, if we could live these perfect lives of I am worthy, I am fulfilled, I am, we would never have need and we would never reach out to one another for connection. So it's almost as if our brokenness is where our desire comes from. It is the intention of the creative force behind the universe, I think, that we are kintsugi pottery. And he breaks us so that we will have need. And out of that need, we will reach out to each other and connect. That is just such a nice reframe. (laughs) It It is my sincerest belief. I know that it is. You wrote a piece that is published on the Practice of Being Seen blog, which we'll link to in the show notes about this very stuff. We'll make sure that that's included with the show notes to this piece in case people want to learn more about that and Yeah, I want to go deeper with you. Yeah, to go back to the sexual assault, one thing I wanted to say that I see coming out of this Me Too movement, and God, I hope it does, is that, you know, one of the first pieces I wrote that you said, you were the one who encouraged me, write the Huffington Post, you need to be heard about this. 
Yeah, I think that was your Brock Turner piece, right? Yeah, about the Stanford rape case. And what infuriated me about that was what his father said, that my son should not have to go to jail over 20 minutes of his life. And I think finally we're starting to see through this movement that it is not about 20 minutes of something that happened. It's about how that changed that individual's brain in that moment and changed the trajectory of their entire life from then on. And it is not about 20 minutes. It is about a lifetime of fear. It is really how the brain is wired. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about how the brain is wired? Absolutely. Get me into ACEs, please. Yeah, let's go there. (laughs) So these adverse childhood experiences, I showed the documentary last night to my grad students. It's called Paper Tigers. It's about a school in Walla Walla, Washington, that is an alternative school for kids who haven't been able to make it in the mainstream. And they haven't been able to make it in the mainstream because they have these huge traumas in their life. And look, what happens when we inherit these huge traumas early on is that the amygdala becomes more reactive and the frontal brain is underdeveloped as we grow. And so you can look at the brain scans of individuals that have suffered these ACEs. So ACEs are things like you watched your mother being beaten in the home on a regular basis, or you were beaten in the home on a regular basis, or you were sexually assaulted, or you were constantly living in an environment where you were at risk of being homeless, or you didn't have heat, or you lived in a neighborhood where people were constantly being shot. These are things like ACEs. There's a list of about 10 of them. They go from extreme to lesser extremes. Right. There's a variety and a continuum in there. But the interesting thing is that it's the lesser extremes that really rewire the brain, right? So we've not seen neglect as a serious issue until recently. And here's the thing about neglect is that it has this drip, drip, drip effect. It's really kind of the reverse effect that Vegas was built on, this what we call a variable schedule of reinforcement, right? A variable ratio schedule. So that I know eventually I'm going to pull that slot machine arm and it's going to pay off. I don't know how much, but it's going to be good. And so that keeps me pulling that because I'm not getting reinforced on a regular basis, right? It's just every now and then. Well, if we look at this from the child who's at home, I know you have too. I've literally had clients say, I would lay awake at night and listen for my father to come through the door because I could tell by his walk if he was drunk or not. And I would know then if I should get my little sister up and hide her under the bed. Mm. Living in that environment of the threat of violence repeatedly over and over and over and over has a much larger impact on the way the brain is formed than one tornado that tore our house up, right? Right. And so what happens is that the brain, the, the frontal cortex underdevelops. The interesting thing is you end up with very much like autism symptoms, right? The brain doesn't prune as well, and so you end up with way convoluted, messed up white matter in the brain. For our listeners, can you explain what you mean by doesn't prune as well? So when you're from zero to two years old, you're born with about 100 billion neurons in your brain. But from zero to two, those neurons are creating connections, more and more and more connections, like little fingers or fibers that go out and touch each other, right, so that it can transfer information from one neuron to another. By the time you're two years old, you have trillions and trillions and trillions more connections than you actually need. And so the job of the brain from two years old until senility, when you're old, is 
to begin pruning that back, just like a farmer would prune a fruit tree to get bigger, stronger fruit. Yeah. And we say that the neurons that fire together wire together. So the connections, like if I smell roses and my mother hugs me, then from that point on in my life, those two things are together. And every time I smell roses, I feel warm and fuzzy inside. Or every time you get a hug, you smell roses. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Those two things have wired together. And on the converse, if I hear someone's pitch of voice sound like my father or mother who is abusive to me, this I see happen a lot, right? What happened that your spouse set you off? Well, she took a tone that sounded like my mom, right? And so those neurons have wired together. Well, in individuals with trauma, the pruning doesn't happen as well. Individuals with autism, the pruning doesn't happen as well. And so what we end up with is sensory issues. And so we have individuals with great trauma in their childhood who don't like noisy environments, don't like crowded environments, right? May have deep sensory issues to certain smells or sounds or tastes or feelings, don't like to be touched as much. And I'm curious, this is just evoking something for me, and I'm wondering, these highly sensitive individuals where trauma is very likely a part of this, there's also some newer research that's coming out that's suggesting some of this could be epigenetics. It might. Well, it's related in this way. It's really largely about cortisol in the system. So one of the things that happens when this child, when the trauma never lets up, when it's constantly there, these adverse experiences are repeated over and over and over. And even when you have a break, you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop, is that the brain keeps this artificially high level of cortisol in your system. Right. So there's this gene, which is like the stress response. Absolutely. But cortisol and adrenaline are horrible for your body over a long period of time. And so, boy, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole if I start there. So I'm going to stick with what we know is, let's say you're in a near accident on the highway, right? And you swerve and you're pumping cortisol and adrenaline at that point, right? But you're not hit and you pull off in a parking lot somewhere and you start breathing And your body resolves and the cortisol stops after just a few minutes. But if you're in this environment where you're constantly under threat, the cortisol doesn't stop. And what happens, we know now what happens along the lines of epigenetics is that there is a particular gene that is responsible for, and there's a protein that's related in that gene that is responsible for that resolution of cortisol in your system. So you pull off the road. Oh, that was a near miss, that idiot, I can't believe. And you breathe a little bit and breathe a little bit. And then that gene expresses and it shuts off the cortisol flow and tells the amygdala to, you know, kind of release that place and calm down. What we know is that in individuals who are born and their mother is under a lot of anxiety and stress at the time, often that gene is damaged. And so they're born with a predisposition of not being able to resolve those cortisol levels as easily. So fascinating. Yeah. And so this is where epigenetics comes in, right? Along with things like the myelination between these, which allows too much firing between these connections. Myelin's like this kind of think of it as a paraffin wax sheath that goes over your connections, these axons that, that are between the neurons, right? And we know that that gets damaged. And when it's damaged, then it's like not having insulation on a wire that's hot and you're more liable to get accidental firing, right? So it's fascinating stuff. 
So bring us back from here, bring us back into current relationships. <laughs> so I think in the current relationship, what we have then is we see this a lot in the attachment disorders, right? Very much. One of the things I loved about this Paper Tigers show is that what they showed is that one stable individual could change one of these kids' lives. And they do it, and they've been showing it in research. And I've watched this documentary probably four times now, and every time I get to this point, I'm in tears because this teacher is up there, and he's explaining on one of those magic boards, you know, what aces are. And he shows them the list of questions of aces. You know, everybody has their little clicker out in the classroom, and he says, I want you to type in the number of aces that you've experienced in your life. And over half of the class has more than six aces in their life. And if you have over, over four of those indications in your life, you're seven times more likely to suffer from addiction. If you have over four of those aces in your life, you're five times more likely to have cancer or heart disease. These are very real things, right? And so he begins explaining to them how it affects their brain and how maybe it's not entirely their fault that they want to get up and throw a chair at a teacher sometimes that their brain gets triggered in a way that they can't control, but he's going to begin teaching them how to deal with that is the point, right? But the way he teaches them that is by being this holding space for them. And so the period ends, the bell rings, and they're starting to leave, and he looks at them all, and he says, hey, guys, and they all look up at him, and he says, I love you. You know that. (sighs) And I'm just like, wow. You know, I'm just like, wow. You know, this is what we need. This is what we need. It's so much what we need. It's also, you know, when we think of a really healthy attachment framework, when we think of a child growing up in a healthy environment, this is what we think of. Well, and that's it, is that he's providing that. And I see this play out in relationships later. There's a later scene in the show where they take this one kid who's got a lot of problems, but they take him to, just like I did my daughter this last weekend, I took her to MU. So she's a junior in high school. We're going to explore MU. She wants to be a vet. It's the best program in the country. It looks like she took it in. She's all excited. He didn't have parents to do that. So two teachers did it for him. We care enough about you to take you up to Washington State and introduce you to this campus and help you do your application. And he got accepted. And here's where we get to the attachment issues, right? We see this in couples all the time, too. Things are going really good for me. But because of my life, I can't trust that. And I know the other shoe's going to drop. So screw it. I'm going to do something to mess it up right now, right? And so what does he do? He drops out of that school and he sends the teacher a message. He's like, you're a shitty fucking teacher. I don't know why I wasted the last fucking few years of my life when I could have just been hanging out getting high. This has been a waste of my time. You know I can't do it. I know I can't do it. And the teacher, instead of responding back to him, as many teachers would now with, you can't say that to me, right? (laughs) He responds back with, I hear you, man. You're hurting right now, and I wish I could help you with that. Just know that my love for you is not dependent on anything, and I look forward to you coming back. That's a beautiful reply. That kid came back the next day to school and went on to enroll in college and wants to be a teacher. Tell me he didn't have an impact by just looking at that kid and instead of moving away in his own defensiveness and reactivity, instead of allowing his limbic region to take over himself, he moved into that painful place and said, just know I love you no matter what. 
You know, that reminds me of a story from my own life that I might have shared on the podcast before. But there was this moment when I was in my like tumultuous, like preteen years, and I was in my grandparents' care, and I was screaming at my grandmother for some reason. I must have done something and she must have set a boundary and I was in one of those I hate you I hate you I hate you places and she just looked at me and said I know you do right now Mama Lashina but I always love you that was it that's exactly what I did for my daughter exactly mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. I do for my daughter and my son right but my daughter especially because she's my stepdaughter and her father was a sociopath and she had to go for these required visits early on, right? And she would come home raging at me because it wasn't safe to rage at him. I hate you. And I would look at her and I would say, I know, I love you anyway, though. Yeah. And and speaking from the other side of it, as somebody who's now an adult who had that experience, that is one of the single most powerful moments in my entire life. Right. Because she was a grounding post for you, right? I tell parents all the time, I know they're a pain in your ass. I know that. I get it. I've got two. They're a giant pain at times. Yes. But they need you to be the grounding post. So when the hurricane hits, they know they can tie on. (sighs) And the only way they're going to do that is if they're allowed to come in the door from school when they've had a crappy day and rail at you and rage at you. Of course you set boundaries. Look, you're not allowed to talk to me that way. You know you're not. You need to go to your room, take a few breaths, and then come back and we'll talk about whatever it is that bothers you. Right? So we set the boundaries, but we do it always with, look, you know I love you. You know I love you. That doesn't change. No matter what you do, no matter how much you screw up, I'm going to love you. That's a grounding place for them. Can we talk for a minute about the importance of rage, like of the full variety of expressions of emotions and how shutting down pieces of it, like shutting down the rage, doesn't necessarily fully encapsulate the emotional experiences we need to grow? Yeah, I think, you know, I think anger gets a bad rap in our society, right? Very much. This is why I love Viktor Frankl so much, why I named my Great Dane after him, (laughs) right? Because... His whole thing after coming out of the camps was, I cannot control what other people do to me. What determines the kind of human being I'm going to be is how I respond to that. Mm. Yes, I talk about this all the time. Exactly. I get to be angry. I need to determine how I want to respond to that. And I come from this place, too, that if you are angry all the time, right, you get to be angry, you get to have those feelings. But if you decide to live in that anger, then it's you that lives in that anger. Absolutely. You know, the, one of the fundamental things they say in recovery meetings is that resentment is an acid that will eat your soul. It's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I think sometimes, though, that we confuse that with the desire to control anger. No, you can't control your emotions. I tell my clients when I'm teaching them mindfulness, the point of mindfulness is not to control your thoughts and emotions. You can't do that. It's to keep your thoughts and emotions from controlling you. Say that again. It's important. It's, well, it's not my original. I've read it before, but... That's okay. It's just, it's important for our listeners to hear. The point of mindfulness is not to control your thoughts and emotions. It is to keep your thoughts and emotions from controlling you. So in the real world example of this is my daughter and I joke around a lot and she comes to me and she laughs, but she's a little bit serious. And she says, you know, sometimes 
I think really bad things about you in my head. And I said to her, you know what? You're allowed to do that because you couldn't control that if you wanted to. You're only responsible for what comes out of your mouth. Yes. Right? And so it's normalizing the emotion, but making me responsible for the behavior. And this is the same thing that happens with trauma. You know, I had a client not too long ago who's just had this epiphany moment and he put it in such brilliant terms that I constantly use it now. He said, what happened to me when I was a child, none of that was my fault, but it's all become my responsibility. Wow. Because out of that, he was acting badly towards his children and his wife. And that's where the responsibility gets taken in terms of his, his Right. Action. And so we came to this place where he finally had this epiphany, this moment, this realization that, you know, I couldn't control any of that when I was a kid. None of that was my fault. But it's become my responsibility. But, but what he's done in that moment, what he's illustrating, is that he's not living in a victim place. He's no. living in a place of power. He's living in a place where he's finally turned the corner from, I am broken to, look how beautiful I can be if I heal. Yes. Right? Like that Kintsugi pottery. I love that image, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> that my brokenness is what can make me beautiful if I use it, right? I'm only a really good therapist in addictions and trauma with my clients because I know their experience from the inside out. Right. I've lived that. So I get it. When you tell me I felt ashamed and that's why I used and then I felt more ashamed on a very visceral level. I know what that's like. Right. And that I'm not saying you can only be an effective trauma therapist if you know that. But I'm saying it makes me better. I can use those broken spaces in myself to become better, to become a better tool. And I think this is also just a key here in terms of human to human interactions that we all have broken spaces. Exactly. We're back to that point that I was talking about earlier, that everyone is broken. That's the big secret. And mm -hmm. I think I see this too often with new therapists and therapists in general, that they're afraid of their own brokenness. There's this myth out there that I have to be perfect before I walk in the room and try and help you heal. And I think it's a myth that extends beyond just therapists and it extends into life in general, right? Like we want to be perfect parents. We want to be perfect partners. We don't want to admit our flaws. I think for therapists, it goes a step deeper because if we're supposed to be experts and I put supposed to be experts in quotes, well, then we carry a whole nother layer of pressure. And it's us buying back into that myth of scarcity that Brene Brown talks about. Mm -hmm. that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not enough. And when I'm enough, I see people do this in, I work a lot with people of faith and I see them do this. One of the common problems in the American Christian church is that everybody in there is thinking God is all forgiving, but he doesn't know me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm going to hide my brokenness from everybody else. And I'm going to bring pies and I'm going to look like the perfect church goer, but inside I'm dying because I don't know how to handle my brokenness. And so this is where projection often comes from, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, if I can point out your flaws, you won't look for mine. I'll keep you doubting yourself, and then you, you can't see mine. And this is what I see in adult relationships Favorite tool all the time. of gaslighting yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just uh, stop for a minute. Sometimes I just have to take a break myself because I just get like, ah, you know, 
Stop. <laughs> it's this blame game. And I think we get caught up with it in so many ways, culturally, in society, out in the world, but also within the context of our families and at home and in the most intimate relationships in our lives. I think that's why we can't have a civil discourse anymore. I can't remember where it was, but I was reading, it was like an op-ed piece and it was either in the New York Times or the Washington Post because those are the fake news places I go all the time. So, (laughs) but this guy was right on the money and he was saying part of the problem that we're having is we've raised generations of people saying, you don't talk about two things at party, politics or religion. And where is our world most screwed up right now? Politics and religion. Well, these are the things we need to open conversations about. Include sex in there too, by the way. Yeah. We need to start talking about it, right? We need to start talking about it because that's the only way we're going to learn how to have a civil discourse to listen to each other. It's more important that we're listening about it than talking about it. Yeah. We need to be having these conversations. And I hope that's in part, at least, what this podcast is bringing forth is the beginning, the openness to have these deeper conversations and to go there. It really, it just requires, when I become afraid, I have to go back to focusing on my breathing. The most essential thing that connects me in the world is my breath. And I have to go back to that because it grounds me in the here and now. It is impossible for my brain to focus on what I'm afraid of in the future and where I'm at right now. You know, I'm thinking there's actually two things that I teach all my clients. Breathing is certainly one of them. It's the most fundamental thing we have. And if we can pay attention to our breathing, then we're paying attention to our bodies and we're reconnecting the brain with the body. And we're also focusing on what is now, which is releasing my focus on what I'm afraid of might be. Yes. I teach all of my clients when they first walk in the door in our first session, sometimes even on the phone before they get in the door, just to focus on the in and the out breath and bring their attention there. The other thing I often teach my clients, sometimes a little later, is to bring their attention to what it feels like just to stand. And what if they shift their focus from one foot to the other? What does that awareness do? That somatic experiencing, all of the research says is so important. And I believe that's why it grounds us in the here and now. I'll give your listeners one of my favorite apps. And I had been practicing when I found this app. I'd been practicing my own mindfulness for 25 years. But it's taken me to some kind of next level with this stuff. What is this app? It's called the Chill app and it's free. And it just goes off. It's very simple. It goes off in the morning and you get this cool quote from Rumi or Thoreau or somebody neat like that. But more importantly, it goes off four or five times a day. And it says things like, what thoughts are running through your head right now? Or can you feel your feet on the ground beneath you? Can you stop and take three breaths? Right? And so it grounds you four or five times a day in the present moment, forces you to shift your focus and creates this pattern in your brain of being willing to do that. Oh, that is awesome because this is the way that we repattern our brain. It's through the ongoing practice of a new behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. (sighs) I need to breathe myself right now and get carried away. (laughs) Yes, please. Let's take a breath. I think this is such a delicious conversation. If there's one place that I kind of, another little rabbit hole that I want to take us down a tiny bit, it's the space in adult relationships, in love relationships, romantic relationships, where 
you get two partners together and they probably come in with their own aces, their own stuff, probably a history of addiction, a history of trauma. And there's a dance between them, a dance of connection and disconnection. And it's scary and it's frightening. And perhaps one of the most frightening pieces is if I actually connect to you. Right. If I actually let you in. That's that reactive space where I'm not used to things going good. That's that attachment disorder, right? That's that I'm not used to things being good. I know eventually you're going to see what my parents saw, that I'm not worth it, that I'm a pain in the ass, and you're going to leave me. And so it feels really good right now, but I can't take losing that. So I'm going to get on Craigslist and set up a hookup and go have an affair. Right? I mean, that's what happens. Or I'm going to tune out. I'm going to make doing the dishes more important than talking to you. Exactly. Or pick up my phone. Right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to put everything I have into our children and nothing into our relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Or my work becomes the important thing. Right? And... Mm -hmm. There's mean? so many different ways of disconnecting, and it sometimes it's in, in the context of affairs, but sometimes, and I, Esther Perel is talking about this a lot lately with her new work, but it's this idea that we disconnect and we betray our partners and our connection to them in so many ways, and it's not always about an affair, although that is one of the ways that it sometimes happens. You know, the thing is, it's the emotional affairs that are much worse than the physical, sexual affairs, mm. right? I don't know. I mean, I think an affair hurts. <laughs> I don't yeah. really qualify. Because That's true. But I mean, I think it's that you connected with somebody else thing, right? But that aside, I mean, I have to be careful about this myself, right? I love my work. Mm -hmm. I could easily disappear into my work. And busyness, keeping ourselves busy, overworking, this is another side effect of trauma. Absolutely. I don't have to think about it if I've got this in front of me, right? Mm -hmm. And I can even tell myself sometimes I'm burying myself in the here and now doing what's in front of me. Well, not really. Because hmm. what I'm doing is I'm burying myself in what's in front of me, but I'm pushing back what's inside of me to do that, you know? <laughs> Right. And it's that what's inside of me that's really immediate. Yeah. That's what's going to come back and bite me in the backside. This is such an important conversation. And Robert, I want to have you back on for us to dive in even deeper. I would love it. Yeah. I know that you have a client coming in, so we have to get going. But can you tell our listeners where they can find you? You have a few podcasts. You have a website and a group practice. I do. You know, because I'm building a new trauma treatment center, the podcasts have been dead for a while. I hope to pick up the mindful recovery one. I hope to hand off. I hope to find someone who's as good at autism, you know, and can take over the autism one down the road. But right now they're kind of on hiatus. Well, why don't you tell our listeners what they're called just so that they can find what's out there because they do exist and there's content. Mindful recovery is a podcast dedicated to trauma and addictions and dealing with that. Listening to autism is a podcast dedicated to seeing autism as a trauma event and treating it from a trauma-informed perspective. I have a book coming out called The Life Recovery Method. It's all about that, about how it acts as a trauma in the brain, hmm. a little bit of the brain science about how that happens, and about how we should be approaching children, not from an ABA perspective, but a what makes you feel safe in the world perspective. And then we can teach them. 
they're not going to learn as long as they don't feel safe. So I want to go into that whole conversation with you in a future. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But they can find all of this at liferecoveryconsulting.org. Thank you so much, Robert. It is, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like my brain is firing with so many new connections right now. And I know that's exactly what I needed this morning. So thank you again. Yeah, I appreciate being on here. I'm going to have to take the next five minutes to calm down before my client comes in. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to let you do that. Thank you. All right. You know, throughout our lives, we conform and we inhibit our truest nature. I'd like to invite you to join us in the Wild Woman online discussion group. I'm launching these groups this month. They're going to run for six consecutive months on the last Thursday of every month. We're going to be meeting online from roughly noon to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to be journeying together in remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. We are going to be inspiring one another to reawaken the creative wildness that lives within our souls. And I'd love to have you there. You can learn more by going to practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. In addition to my relationship therapy practice in New York, I mentor and consult with therapists and kick-ass change-making professionals. Does that sound like you? There's a link to click in our show notes if you're interested in working with me. Join our Facebook community and find us on social media at Pobscast. I love hearing from you, so you're also welcome to send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>